Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Susie Wiles, a microbiologist at the University of Auckland with a specialty in infectious diseases. As the COVID-19 crisis deepens, it's never been more important for journalists to get their head around complex data from clinical trials and explain those complexities to their audiences. With Dr. Wiles' unique experience in microbiology and science communication, she talks to us about the uncertainty of the data, how long it could take to develop a vaccine, and why countries should be cautious about those antibody tests. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Dr. Susie Wiles. Hey, Susie, thanks so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Um, It's great to have you here. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) Um, I just wanted you to tell us a bit about your background in microbiology and infectious disease and your work and what you're working on, especially with this latest coronavirus. Um, So, yeah, I'm a microbiologist. I'm actually not a virologist. I'm a bacteriologist. Um, So I did um, an undergraduate degree uh, in microbiology specializing in infectious diseases of humans. Um, And then I went away and did a PhD um, in microbiology, but it wasn't to do with infectious diseases. So my PhD was making bacteria glow in the dark to use as sensors of pollution. So the idea is that these bacteria glow only when they're alive. And so when they start to die, then the lights go out. So you've got this kind of really cool way of seeing, in that case, whether a river was polluted or not. Um, But during my PhD, I loved the glowing bit, but really did not care much for the pollution side, Um, really wanted to go back to kind of infectious diseases again. So when I got my first postdoc position, that was basically working on the bacteria that causes tuberculosis and trying to make it glow in the dark. I'm an associate professor at the University of Auckland. I run a research lab where I have know students and technicians and everyone who does all this amazing work my lab was mostly doing antibiotic discovery um, and then some other kind of experiments I'm really interested in transmission of infectious diseases um, and how when we study those in the lab the transmission bit is actually the thing that is most ignored so that's sort of the thing that I've been trying to um, work with Um, but on the side so maybe for about the last um, 10-15 years I've been really interested in communicating science. So when COVID-19 kind of happened, um, I guess because I also live in a small country, um, I've kind of built up a reputation as somebody who can explain complicated science things to the general public. So when, and it's, you know, infectious diseases. And so when the first cases started happening in China, you know, I was asked to go on breakfast TV and say, hey, so what is this thing? And what do we know about it? And most of the time I was like, well, we don't really know very much at all. <laughs> um, and then that seems that sort of become my role. So how you can keep people informed and calm has been the thing that I've been trying to do, but also get them to do the right thing. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I've ended up having this amazing um, uh, kind of collaboration with a cartoonist called Toby Morris, and we've been trying to kind of distill some of these really important messages down into really cool graphics that um, that people will get. You know, what is exponential growth and why should we stay at home <laughs> and various things like that. And it's been really amazing to see the cartoons that we've done being taken up by governments in so Australia, Argentina, basically repurposing them and using them in their official 
you know, um, this is how we need to respond to coronavirus. So it's kind of been amazing, really. Well, that's very encouraging to hear that your designs have really made such an impact. Um, I wonder if we could switch gears and talk a bit about what we know and what we don't know about COVID-19. Yeah. Well, so actually, so one of the first things would be really cool to talk about is the data, um, because what people are watching is science in action, right? I mean, this, this is something that until January, this virus wasn't known about. And so, you know, we're just the beginning of April now. I mean, isn't it astonishing how kind of how much we know since January and the fact that there are now clinical trials going on for treatments and some vaccines already kind of, you know, numerous vaccines in development. So what people are watching is on an extremely accelerated scale, <laughs> the process of science in action. But what that means is that there's also huge amounts that we don't know and there's huge amounts of uncertainty. Um, and the best picture we have at the moment is what happened in Wuhan. So um, the WHO and China did this uh, joint kind of mission where they basically put all the data that was known about the cases um, into a report to then say, okay, so what do we know about this virus? You know, who gets the disease? Um, this was basically all the kind of classic things about epidemiology was stuff that was come in that um, in that report. The really important thing to remember though is that that was what happened in China with the things that they put in place with the population that they have. And what we're unfortunately seeing now is this incredible experiment that's going on where we are now watching this disease play out in other countries, all of whom are doing fairly different or well, almost different things to control it and have different populations. There's, you know, different socioeconomic things going on, um, access to healthcare, all sorts of things are different. And so what we might see now is the data that we, the understanding we got from China might not be applicable to other countries, right? Or it might be. It, it, so it's it, so what we're watching is this kind of incredible experiment where we still don't know whether everything that came out of the Chinese and WHO report is going to play out in other places. And so you will see people arguing about case fatality um, numbers and all sorts of things. And well, the thing that we do know, I think the only thing that's really certain is that this virus infects humans, it transmits human to human, and for some people, the outcome is pretty catastrophic. And what we do know is that when, you know, because this out outbreak is happening so fast, that it um, has the massive capacity to overwhelm health systems. And that means that even though people might have survived with good treatment, they aren't going to survive because there isn't, you know, there aren't the intensive care beds or the ventilators to look after everybody who's sick. And when we overwhelm health systems, the other um, thing that happens is that those people who don't have COVID-19 but have a heart attack or something else might not be able to be treated or might go in for treatment and get infected. So there's this kind of weird thing going on where everybody's arguing about, do you do this measure or do you do that measure? Well, and, you know, and how many people is it going to affect and how many people are going to die? Kind of losing sight of the fact that we have lots of countries that are in slightly different positions in terms of where this outbreak is, showing us what might happen to us if you don't act soon, right? So it's a really, in terms of data, it's a kind of really weird position, but we can see what is happening in those countries that don't act fast enough. And it was really clear that in order to get it under control in China, they had to build new hospitals so they could treat people. And they did that in a matter of days. Um, and they also had to stop the movement of everybody and, and stop it from spreading. And so um, I'm finding it a little frustrating that people are 
are kind of falling into the, oh, well, it's just like flu. So, you know, flu kills so many people. It's like, well, but we also have vaccines for flu and most people get vaccinated and most people are not going to die. So it's, um, yeah, it's a weird thing when the data is so uncertain uh, and, and, and yet that's all we have to base our assumptions on. And do they know if this can mutate at all or do they not know because they don't have that data? Um, so that, that is known a little bit from the sequencing. So uh, lots of the viruses are being sequenced, so they know what their genetic sequence is. Um, and there was some talk originally about how there were two types of virus, um, uh, but I haven't heard any credible virologists or evolutionary people talking about that anymore. So like sometimes, well, these sequences, they do there is the opportunity to make you know small mistakes and so whether that was just some um, um you know now we have more data that's not been shown it will certainly mutate a little bit um and so this is why you can build these evolutionary trees where you can see where the virus has been from you know because it is changing as it goes but i don't think the rate of mutation is very high um in the united states they're talking a lot about using anti-malarial drugs um, where are we with, with like experiments on that? Um, so there were some clinical trials um, done uh, towards the end of the outbreak in China. Um, now there are a whole bunch of clinical trials that are happening. And actually um, Ben Goldacre's lab at Oxford has built a trial tracker. So you can see what trials are underway. My understanding is the anti-malarial stuff is bullshit and that it was basically incredibly bad data. And possibly... Um, picked up because of a political system that wanted the virus to be over, so wanted to show that there was a solution. Um, and, and actually the really bad thing now is those drugs are becoming in short supply for those who actually need them. Um, but there are certainly lots of antivirals that are being tested uh, and what we need is, you know, good case numbers to know whether, it will, whether they will actually work. About a month ago, there were a number of articles out there saying, if you have COVID-19, don't take ibuprofen, take paracetamol or aspirin instead. Is there any evidence to back up those claims? Yeah, again, so this was a, I think a doctor stood up and said, or somebody possibly French or something stood up and said, oh, we shouldn't take this thing. Um, but it has been roundly uh, kind of quashed. Um, it may well be something to do with the patients that were looked at. Um, rather than whether they were actually taking something. Um, again, that was something that completely blew up, and then I haven't seen any credible scientists actually go, yeah, no, that's the thing, you should stop taking that. So um, that suggests to me that, yeah, something weird happened there, or it was blown out of all proportion, or somebody got the wrong end of the stick. And I'm curious, can you speak to anything about testing kits for COVID-19? Like, how hard are these to develop? Yeah, so, okay, so there's two basic ways of testing for COVID-19. Um, so there's the gold standard, which is basically to identify the genetic material of the virus. So that is the test that was developed, you know, almost immediately, uh, and the pro, you know, the protocols for doing that basically put up on the web and spread to everyone. So there was really no excuse for not being able to get that test up and running, um, you know, as soon as possible. So what the, but the thing is, it's not like a pregnancy test. It's not like you just, you know, pee on a stick and wait five minutes, right? It's um, what it does is you have to get the virus. So um, that's generally done by a nasal swab, which is sees the videos of this. It looks horrendous. Um, kind of swish it all around so that you've got cells that hopefully have the virus there. Then that gets delivered to a lab 
and they um, then extract the genetic material of the virus from that sample. And then that gets run through, um, so the viral genetic material is called RNA, and then there's, uh, basically that RNA has to be turned into DNA, so there's this enzyme process that does that, and then they use very specific um, sequences of, uh, of DNA to look for this actual virus versus any other virus. And so that's then a reaction that, another reaction that takes place. Um, and if the virus is there, it will turn very small numbers of that virus, of copies of that particular gene, into millions and millions of, of copies that can be then, you know, that give you a positive test. So that's the gold standard. It's looking for the presence of virus. There, it has become more and more sensitive as people have messed around with, you know, or, or played with the what enzymes you use, how do you do this kind of stuff. But it is dependent on the virus being present and, so, and, uh, and above a certain threshold to be detected. And then if you know you have that virus, then you know that that person has the coronavirus. The new tests that are coming, so, and, I, and I saw somewhere that somebody has that there might be something where they're trying to now turn that into like a 15 minute test, which is, which would basically be like possibly in cartridge form. Can you just put your sample in that and then it will do the extraction. It will do all that kind of stuff in this little cartridge form and give you a, a readout in minutes. Um, I haven't seen any actual data for that working. I just read the article that said the FDA were looking at it or had approved it or something, um, but we'll require this piece of equipment which is which does all of the so this this um, it's basically a, a polymerase chain reaction which essentially changes temperatures and so you've got these enzymes that work in different temperatures and it does this thing and so it's a machine that basically ramps up and down temperatures to give you this this um, this reading. So that's the main test. The second tests that are coming on board now are, are what are called um, antibody tests or serology tests. And so these are blood tests where you take a blood sample from someone and that has that can just be a pinprick. And what it's looking for is uh, whether your body has made an immune response to the virus. So it is looking for um, antibodies uh, called IgM and IgG. And the thing that we and so this this test has come about because some uh, in some people have followed uh, taking blood from people with COVID nineteen and followed and looked at what antibodies they produce and when. And so people produce this IgM antibodies um, around five to seven days after they become infected. Um, and then you make IgG around 14 days of infection. And so, the, but, but those studies also showed that some people never made antibodies. So they had infection, but they never made antibodies. Um, and when you take a blood sample really matters. So if you take a blood sample at day three, you will see nothing because there is no IgM and there's no IgG being produced. If you take something at day maybe eight, you might see IgM, you might not, but you won't see IgG. And so, but if you take at maybe after day 14, then the idea would be there should be IgG there. And so you would pick up that somebody had been exposed to that coronavirus. And so this, this these assays are really important for things like if we want to look at um, you know, vaccine candidates and things you want to know, has somebody mounted an immune response? Have they made antibodies? Because that's what's going to protect them if they see the virus in real life. And so these tests are awesome for that. Um, but they're very cheap. So everyone's saying, well, can we just use these now instead of the gold standard looking for the virus? And the really important things to remember with this is if you take the blood at the wrong time, a negative might not be a negative, And some people may never make antibodies, in which case a negative is not a negative. 
And so this is this idea of false negatives is the thing that is really worrying because if you, you can use these tests to say, yes, you have been exposed. And I guess the way that some countries are wanting to use them is say, well, this shows that you've had the virus and so you should be able to go back to work because you won't be, you know, because you'll now be immune. We don't know that yet, but that's the, that's the hope that that would be true. But if you got a negative result, what would that mean? Would that mean you had had the virus and not made antibodies or would it mean that you were just not in the right, you know, your blood wasn't taken at the right time? And depending on the test, I have seen some data where some only gave you results two out of 10 times, a correct result two out of 10 times. And then I've seen others where you got a correct result more like eight out of 10 times. And so that really matters. Like if you're going to deploy this test, even though it's cheap and you're only going to get the right answer two out of 10 times, well, that's a really crap test and you've got to really wonder whether it's worth doing, right? Eight out of 10 times, that becomes a bit better. But what happens to the two out of 10 times when it doesn't work? What happens to those people? What do we tell them? Um, and so that's the really tricky thing about those tests and them being brought online so fast is how reliable is the test that you are getting and what does it tell you if you're negative? And why do you think certain countries seem to be following whose guidelines and then others aren't and they're going their own way and they're trying to cut corners like is this politics is this just because you know different countries have different situations and they're focusing on different things and you know they're trying to do the right thing or do they just care about the economy not lives like what what do you think is it why it's varies so much i think all of those things What's really clear is those countries that reacted really fast, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, are countries that have dealt with things like SARS before. I mean, Taiwan is, if, if it's not their leader, it's like second in command is an actual, like either medical doctor or epidemiologist or somebody. So somebody with real experience of infectious diseases. And so those countries who responded fast know how serious these things can be and put in measures years ago for how you would respond in a pandemic situation. And when they saw what was happening in China, they enacted those plans really fast. So like, okay. We have a plan for this. This is what's happening. And so we put the plan in place. And it's really telling that those countries are the ones that are controlling it the best. Um, those countries that have taken a different approach are ones that have seen, you know, that have not had this experience before and that have really different, uh, I guess, I don't know whether it's values or, I mean, they're just, they're very different. I mean, I've seen a lot of arguments about, um, well, the economy is really important. And so we just need to make sure the economy is okay. But it's just, it's a, that's a weird, like a false economy argument, right? Because um, an overwhelming of health systems, everybody dying is also bad for the economy, but somehow nobody's put a value on that versus a value on, you know, closing borders and, and everybody working from home and, you know, businesses closing down. So it's a weird thing, but it does appear to be that those countries that have no experience are the ones that are choosing the economic arguments and I think, and I don't think they're, they're um, I just, I, I question whether the economic arguments are even valid because, as I say, it doesn't appear that they've really made an economic calculation for the other side of that. Um, whereas those countries that have dealt with these sorts of things before have taken a very hard line and are dealing with it and, and their economies are not going to be as badly affected as everyone else. So, um, yeah, that's, and, and I guess 
there's also a weird, I wonder whether there's a weird human psychology thing going on where everyone thinks, oh, it's not going to happen to us. It, or we're, we're special. It will be different here. And then you just see country after country just falling, but just being like a couple of weeks apart and going, are you not watching what's going on in country X? Because that's you in two weeks' time. Um, and so I'm curious how, I mean, everyone probably is asking this, how is this going to play out and for how long? Yeah, and that, so that's not my area at all. Ideally, we'd eliminate it uh, because we are vulnerable if it's not eliminated and there is no vaccine. So our, uh, yeah, I mean, our, what's the plan? The plan would be either eliminate or vaccinate. Uh, and both of those plans are going to take time because every country is responding in a different way, doing, you know, doing things in, in, in different ways. What I imagine is going to happen is there may well be countries that keep it under control and they will be the ones who are able to open up to each other and not to others. Or it may be that if you, you know, so we might, what we might end up having is um, that we'll have little pockets around the world where life is kind of normal, um, but those pockets can only interact with other pockets like them. Uh, and people who maybe want to travel to those places are going to have to show either they've had COVID-19 or they go into quarantine for two weeks before they are allowed there. Um, it's going to be the weirdest thing. And, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's just not clear um, how long this is going to take. If we're reliant on a vaccine, it's going to be, you know, 18 months or so. Uh, if we're going for eradication, ugh. I don't, I, you know, it's, I mean, this is a long-haul thing. And so what lots of countries, I think, are, are asking themselves is, how would we go about being global again if people are still susceptible? Which is why you can see that the, the other approach to dealing with this virus was the herd immunity approach, which I will point out is a, an approach that is about vaccination. So the idea is that if you don't have a whole bunch of susceptible people, or if, you have to reach enough people where the virus can't spread from person to person because enough people have either been vaccinated, well, generally have been vaccinated. In this case, this was the UK was one of the first to go on this route, on this route was like, well, if we protect those who would have a really bad, you know, run of this virus and let the virus just do its thing and go through most people and so most people will get through it okay, then there will be enough people immune to the virus that the virus won't be able to spread through our population. It's based on a whole bunch of assumptions about how long that will take, you know, how many people do have a mild infection versus actually need help, whether you're going to overwhelm the, you know, healthcare system, all of this kind of thing. Um, but it was, it was essentially an experiment. And it was basically an economic argument that if, that if that those countries that did that, they would be able to be back on their feet and business as normal much more, much sooner. And they would be able to interact with the rest of the world because they would be mostly immune. Um, that, that argument means you are accepting a loss of life. And, you know, Boris Johnson, when he first proposed that as the route they were taking, he was really clear. He didn't put a number on it, but he said every family should expect to lose loved ones before their time. And then when the modelers did the modeling, they were like, that's like half a million people. <laughs> and so there are those countries who said, well, that's in our best interest that we let half a million people die um, because that means we'll be back to normal sooner. And then again, I think it comes down to values and going, 
that that being back to normal sooner is worth half a million lives. And there are those people who go, nah. <laughs> and there are those people who go, yeah, okay, I'm good with that. And what's been really telling around all of this is that those countries or those people who seem okay with that equation are usually in a position of privilege. They are not somebody who would likely be particularly badly affected by it, you know, and they've got, they've got good jobs. They've got, you know, they're wealthy and it's not, it's not the people who would be utterly decimated by this virus. And so it just tells you what people value. And I just, I find that quite abhorrent myself. Yeah. And it must be hard, you know, as a scientist to stay out of the politics of this, but find the, you know, the sensibility and the logic and the, uh, but I, I, like you said, it comes down to values, right? Mm. But actually I've, I'm, so my approach to science communication has changed over the years because it's really clear from the research that actually you need to show your values. So, but people know what evidence you're, because it, it's very clear you can use evidence in every in all sorts of different ways, and so you have to I, you have to be really open with okay these are my values and this is the evidence that I'm using to make this judgment. But you have to understand where I'm coming from, um, and and so that resonates with people because they go oh okay well I understand now why you you're talking about that one and why you're taking that position because that is the values base that you're coming from. And that trying to pretend we don't have that values base ends up being disingenuous because. You know, then then it's just a whole bunch of people arguing over the same data. But if you can't see the underlying, yeah, well, this is why I'm arguing that way versus this is why I'm arguing the other way, then that is more confusing to people. I just wanted to talk to you briefly um, about, you know, you were talking about SARS earlier and other infectious diseases. When could we compare COVID-19 to those infectious diseases? At what point do we have enough data to see what was going on? And um, I think, well, until we have, I mean, I guess those other outbreaks were fairly small and so, and they were, and they're over. And so we have a kind of, and this is what happened. I mean, we are just at the very beginning of this. So I, yeah, it's going to be a long time before the dust really settles. And what we have to remember about the data as well is that that data is gathered by, you know, understanding cases and things. And at the moment, many health systems are just in complete and utter chaos. Like it's just even hard to keep people alive, never mind gather the data that's needed for others to analyze. So, yeah, I think we have to bear that in mind too. I mean, I've heard that Africa won't be as badly affected because the median population is much younger than, per se, Italy, where it's like 45. So it, do you think that will help them along with maybe the weather? Unclear. Unclear. I mean, Australia is pretty hot and they're having a pretty bad time of it. Um, so uh, it's. I think it's more... And we're starting to see, you know, worse effects now in young people too. So um, there have been some young people now who've died, which hadn't been the case in the outbreak in China. So it, again, who knows whether that's actually true, um, whether it's, you know, all young people come out unscathed is clearly not true anymore. And are, do you have any other top tips or advice for journalists who are reporting on this? Because right now it's like every journalist is a health reporter or a public health <laughs> reporter and they don't really i mean is there a case for yeah. newsrooms to be investing more in this kind of training so they understand science and data yeah. and what's your thoughts on yeah, that underst uh, absolutely understanding the limitations um i think one really important thing that 
people need to start getting their head around this. You know, I'm I'm finding it fascinating to watch the trackers and to see the number of confirmed cases going up and the deaths going up and stuff. What we have to remember is those numbers are becoming more and more unreliable every day. So, you know, many countries are not testing. Um, like the UK is only testing those people who are in uh, intensive care maybe or, or um, and their healthcare workers. So it's not going to be for a long time, like years, um, possibly once we've got all the serology tests, that we will actually know how many people ended up having this disease and how many people died. And, and I think the other number to remember is that um, there will be lots of people who die who didn't die of COVID-19, but who died because of COVID-19. And I wonder whether those will ever be calculated in the statistics either. So we may, at the moment, I feel like we have a massive under count that's getting more and more unreliable by the day of cases and deaths. Um, and it's not going to be a long time before we really fully understand how this played out. Okay. Wow. That is so fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to me, Susie. I really appreciate it. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.